if you please turn your Bible to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2 this morning. That's found on page uh, 566 and 567 in your pew Bible. So we're starting this new series in the book of Isaiah. And to tell the truth, I really did not want to preach on Isaiah. I was hoping to preach on something a little shorter. Actually, I was studying the, the book of Joel and looking to, pre- to preach on that and was gone through that for several weeks. And I realized that that just wasn't right. That wasn't what I was supposed to preach on there. So as I read through Isaiah, I felt this is what I should preach on next. And to be completely honest, I have always been intimidated by Isaiah. Intimidated because Isaiah is a dense book. It is a long book, 66 chapters. And you know, I, I, I spent 50 sermons preaching on 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. So you do the math. You can see how long. As Renee said, she thought that I would preach until Jesus comes if I preach on, on uh, Isaiah. But this is, not only is it a long book, it's a complicated book. And it requires a, a good amount of, of background knowledge of the historical setting. And it's easy to, to get really get bogged down in this uh, historical detail. But Isaiah is, is truly a prophetic book. It's not bound by time. In, in fact, one of the most challenging things about uh, reading or studying this book is that the time frame is, is constantly shifting. Part of it deals with Isaiah's contemporary situation during the reigns of Uzziah and, and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. But also part of it addresses future times. It addresses, at least future to Isaiah, the Babylonian exile, which was a 100 years after Isaiah's death. And the latter part of the book is written to comfort those who are actually in exile. And Isaiah also speaks of the end of the exile. And here he gives the specific name of the Persian ruler who is going to release the people from captivity, Cyrus. And Isaiah wrote this 200 years before it take place. And because of how specific these prophecies are, the, the majority of, of biblical scholars say that Isaiah couldn't have read all this stuff. They didn't believe that prophecy could be answered. There must be at least two or three authors Isaiah wrote the first part that was during his time, but the time during the exile, there must have been someone during the exile writing that, or a post-exilic writer. So they thought there were multiple writers there. But these exile prophecies, these aren't even the most amazing part of the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah also contains numerous messianic prophecies. Some of the clearest, some of the most specific prophecies about Jesus come from the book of Isaiah. So, so much so that many people refer to the book of Isaiah as the fifth gospel. And again, critical scholars didn't miss this fact either. Many thought that this book of Isaiah must have been edited by the early Christians to add all these messianic prophecies, to insert them in that. But you don't hear that theory much anymore because this was shot during the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, where there was a complete scroll of Isaiah. And you know what? It contained all of the same messianic prophecies. This scroll was a thousand years older than the the oldest manuscript we had of Isaiah. It came from the time of Jesus, way too early for for anything to be added into it. And the book that they found a thousand years earlier is identical to the Isaiah that we have in our Bibles. But Isaiah's prophecy doesn't end with the prophecy about the coming Messiah. It also reveals God's plan to unite all people, all nations under the Messiah, all Gentiles under the Messiah. And that's talking about the the time we live in now, the the time of the church. But Isaiah even speaks of a time that's future. He speaks about Christ's messianic kingdom. He speaks about the second coming, the new heavens, the new earth, the restoration of the creation to God's 
original plan when the, the lion will lie down with the lamb. And this constant zooming in and zooming out of the time frame makes study of Isaiah difficult and it makes it confusing. But this book is both incredibly relevant to us today and also incredibly encouraging to the church today. And my goal is, as I preach through Isaiah is not to, not to preach verse by verse, and you're probably saying, thank God for that, right? Because that would take us at least 20 years to go through this. I'm going to take big chunks. We're going to, we're going to hit highlights. We're not going to hit every, uh, every single verse or even every single chapter. We're going to look at, at, at major themes here. We're not going to get bogged down in too much of the historical detail. But I want us to see what Isaiah says to us today, how it is an encouragement to us today, how our current situation can be seen in Isaiah, and especially how this book shows us Christ. I mean, all of Scripture is about Christ, but this is so much clearer about Christ. And I want us to be amazed when we see Christ in this book. Just see, see Christ in, in new ways, see Christ in, in more detail, for Christ to become more glorious to us, more real to us as we study this book. And this first chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 1, this is a, an introduction to the entire book. In, in this chapter, Isaiah is, is God's prophet, and he's serving as the role that the prophets often served as a, a prosecuting attorney. They're bringing charges against God's covenant people because they have broken the terms of the covenant. And as a result, they, they suffer the, the just penalty for the covenant unfaithfulness. So I'm going to read chapter 1 from verse 1 to verse 20, and then I'm going to go over to chapter 2 and read the first five verses, actually uh, chapter 2 from verse 2 to verse 5. So Isaiah chapter 1, hear now the word of the Lord. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left, like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath 
and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary from bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Chapter 2, starting at verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes from many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at your word. We stand amazed at its power, at its relevance. Lord, it comes from you. It comes from your mouth. Father, I pray that you, by your power of your Holy Spirit, that you will enable me to accurately speak this word, explain this word, exegete this word. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will open each of our hearts to hear from you. That it will not be an academic exercise. It will not be a history lesson. It will be an encounter with the living God. And not one of us will leave here unchanged. You will draw each of us closer to yourself. Father, you will be seen and you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this section of Isaiah that we're looking at this morning from from chapter 1, verse 2 to chapter 2, verse 5, this is seen as many as as really a a microcosm of the entire book, uh, 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 the entire book of Isaiah. And Isaiah here speaking as the Lord's prosecutor, he brings charges against the people of Judah. And what are these charges that he brings to them? It's that they have forgotten who they are. Or more specifically, they've forgotten whose they are. They have forgotten the Lord. He says in verse 2, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He says that the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know their God. God's own covenant people do not understand him, do not understand his ways. They are a sinful nation. They're laden with iniquity. He calls them offspring of evildoers who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They despise the Lord. The Holy One of Israel, they despise. They're utterly estranged from God. And even though they are suffering because of their rebellion, they continue. 
In verse 5, it says, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? So they're, they're like a I don't know if you ever had a dog on a choker leash that continues to pull. And even though they're on the leash, even though they, they can't breathe, they keep putting themselves in more pain. They keep pulling. They keep rebelling. And it just increases their pain. That is what Judah is like. And this corruption, this is not minor. This is not only partial. This corruption is radical. This, this depravity is total. It affects every single one of them, and it affects every single part of them. Verse 6, he says, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness. It's, it's, it's total depravity that we see here. And the Lord is trying to get their attention. The Lord has raised up foreign oppressors to get their attention, to get them to return to him, just like he did, just like we saw in our study of, of the book of Judges. God wants them to return to him. God wants them to, to cry out to him, to trust him. But they refuse. They continue to suffer instead of looking up to God. They continue to trust themselves. They continue to make alliances with pagans instead of trusting God. And we'll see this a little bit later in our study. And we see the results of this faithful, faithlessness in verses 7 and 8. The country lies desolate. Their cities are burned. They're being overthrown by foreigners. They're like a besieged city, the text tells us. And does this suffering get their attention? Do they cry out to the Lord? Do they, do they come back to the Lord? Is it like this, in the cycle of judges that we see when, they, when they're finally at the end of their rope, they're flat on their backs, that they finally look up and see the Lord? Do they trust that the Lord will faithfully save them? No. What do they do? They double down in their rebellion. Again, they're like that dog that just keeps pulling that choker tighter and tighter to the point where they're ready to pass out for lack of oxygen. They are dead in their sins and trespasses. They are unable to respond. They, they are in this, this downward spiral, and there's no hope of escape without divine intervention. And the Lord does. The Lord intervenes. The Lord takes the initiative. We see this in verse 9. The Lord preserves a remnant. He says, without that, they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? We see them in, in Genesis. These are these wicked pagan cities that want to have nothing to do with God, and God judges them. And for God's people, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were the epitome of evil. They were the epitome of God's just judgment on evil. And this is the way the Lord refers to Judah, to his own people, to the good kingdom. In verse 10, he refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah. He's telling them, he says, you are no different. He says, even though you are my covenant people, you are no different. You are acting just like the worst of the worst of the pagans. You're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verses 11 through 17, they're rebuked because of their hypocritical worship. Right? They thought they were doing everything. They, they thought they were following the Lord, but they were hypocritical. And the Lord says that these offerings, these sacrifices, they are offensive to the Lord. See, what they're doing is they don't really believe it. They're just going through the motion. It's empty ritual for them. Worship has become a formality. It's become, again, an empty ritual. And the Lord will not accept this type of worship. He is offended by it. He is disgusted by it. This hypocritical, this unbelief, that's really what it is. As he says in verse 15, he will not hear their prayers. See, they worship the Lord with their mouth, but they have blood on their hands. And their actions betray that they really do not believe, that they really do not belong to the Lord. Their God is a God of righteousness, but they do works of evil. Their God is a God of justice, but they fail to do good. They fail to seek justice. 
Their God is the defender of the weak and the powerless, but they oppress and they exploit the fatherless and the widows. But God is also gracious to his rebellious people. God takes the initiative. See, left on their own, they would continue, we would continue to seek deeper and deeper into sin and rebellion. They would not return to the Lord. We would not return to the Lord. They would become like Sodom and Gomorrah. On their own, there is no hope. But thanks be to God they are not on our own. Thanks be to God that we are not on our own. And verse 18 is the hinge for the entire passage. This is where the Lord takes the initiative. And this is where we see a pivot. And look at this well-known verse, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And here we see the promise, the promise of the gospel. Here is the good news. And as as I often say, we can't really understand the good news unless we know the bad news. Unless we know the bad news, the good news is meaningless. Well, we have had 17 verses of bad news. And then there's another 11 verses that I hadn't read that are in the second part of this chapter, verses 21 to 31. But here, right in the middle, right in the middle of this chapter of lots of bad news, we hear the gospel. We have the good news. And God takes the initiative. God makes this declarative statement. God makes this promise. He says, though your your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. My friends, this is a guarantee. This, This will happen. And this happens through Christ. As we've seen throughout the rest of our service, as we have sang, this comes through Christ. This is where we see Christ in this passage. Christ takes our sins, our scarlet sins, and on the cross these sins are punished. These sins are atoned for. They are removed as far as the east is from the west. No longer able to condemn us because they have been punished. And in return, we get Christ's perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience to the Father is credited to us. And my friends, this is the mechanism. The cross is the mechanism that the Holy God uses so that he can be both just and a justifier of his elect. This is how our scarlet sins are removed and we become white as snow, perfectly pure, perfectly sinless. And God applies the benefit of the cross to us by changing our hearts. That's how he does it. He changes our hearts. He takes out this hard heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. And he regenerates us so that we become born again. We become a new creation in Christ. And as new creations with this new heart, we think differently. We see differently. We see God's holiness. We see his beauty. We see his majesty. And we also, for the first time, we see ourselves. We see not this sin-distorted, prideful, and puffed-up, self-deluded image that we normally have ourselves. No, we see ourselves as we truly are, as we are in God's sight. We see our wretched condition. We know that we fall short. We know that we are wicked. We know that we do not pursue justice. We do not correct oppression. But rather, we perpetuate it. We know that we are not on our own, that we are not able to save ourselves. We know that we are helpless. And we cry out to God. And God gives us the faith, the faith to cling to Christ. And it's by this faith, by this faith we are justified. By this faith, which itself is a gift of God's grace, 
we receive the benefits of Christ's atoning death on the cross. God is, is pleased to use our faith as the supernatural instrument through which he applies Christ's work to each one of us personally. This is how my personal sins of scarlet and your personal sins of scarlet, how they are washed away. They are washed by the blood of Christ on the cross. And each one of us, each one of us who are in Christ, we become white as snow, perfectly sinless, perfectly pure in God's sight. And when that happens, then, my friends, then the fun begins. Then we realize that we are no longer held in bondage to sin, no longer held in bondage to Satan, no longer held in bondage to our own selfishness. We now can see God. We now desire God. We want to live for him. We want to die to our selfless desires. And we're no longer God's enemies, no longer enemies under just condemnation. We are now his beloved children, knowing that nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not heights, nor depths, nor angels, nor demons, nor, nor powers or principalities, not even death itself. We are totally and we are completely secure in him. We've also been set free from the power that sin has held over us. We are free to and we desire to please God. We now have the power to put our sin to death. We have the power to cease to do evil and to learn to do good. We now have the power to seek justice. We have the power to correct oppression. The power to bring justice to the fatherless and the and, and plead the widow's case. But my friends, this is not just about Judah. This is not just about us. This is great. Salvation is great. We love it. We praise God for it. We will praise God for all eternity for it. But this is not God's ultimate purpose. God's kingdom goes so much beyond the people of Judah. Beyond those directly addressed in this chapter. And we get a glimpse of God's bigger plan in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 starting at verse 2. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. See, Isaiah is not talking about his own day. He's talking about now. Now is the latter days, as we've often talked about. Now is the last days, this time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And look how Isaiah describes these last days, describes our days. He says, no longer will the followers of the true God be limited to just this one small and, and, and unfaithful nation, to the nation of Judah and, and Israel. Now the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of all the mountains, and all the nations, all the nations on earth shall flow to it. So despite all the, the, the opposition we face from this fallen world system that, that hates God from the world, from the, from the flesh, from the devil, the triune God, the sovereign one of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ has established his name above every other name. Despite the hatred of this fallen world, he has made himself known to all the world as the highest mountain. And my friends, we see that reality today. Even hardcore secularists admit that Jesus Christ was the most influential person ever to walk the face of the earth. Christians, Christianity, Christ and Christianity have had the biggest impact this world has ever seen. And now in these, these latter days, God's covenant people are no longer limited to, to one tiny nation, but it's open to all the nations. All peoples, every tribe, tongue, nation will worship the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we see this further described in verse 3. It says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And here, my friends, we see the, the fulfillment, the, the great commission, the fulfilling of, of Christ's command to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here we see Christian discipleship. Here we see many people drawn to the Lord, many people seeking to learn his ways, studying his law, studying his word. And isn't this what we're doing at this very moment? Learning about our God, growing in his grace. My friends, we are actually a picture of this verse. We, we're a Gentile church. To, to my knowledge, none of us here are, are ethnically Jewish. And we are a picture of the nations. The nations coming to the Holy One of Israel through the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that we are here an answer to the prophecy? A prophecy that was, that was prophesied 2,700 years ago. We are now seeing it. We are actually experiencing it. Being fulfilled at this very moment before our eyes. But this vision goes even beyond that. It goes beyond us today. It points to the time when all opposition is gone. And we're not there yet, but one day we will be. It is absolutely guaranteed. Take a look at verse 4 of chapter 2. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is the messianic kingdom. This is Christ's return when he shall be the righteous judge between all the nations. It will be a time of perfect justice. There will be no more disputes between people. There will be no arguments, no, no, no wars. See, Christ will decide these disputes. And what this means is that all people in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be completely purged of our, our sinful nature. And we will only desire Christ's will, only desire to perfectly obey God's will. And when every single person only seeks God's will, there can be no more conflicts. We are all on the same page. We are all following the same music. We are, we are like a, an orchestra that's perfectly in, in, in time and in tune. There can be no more conflicts. And swords will no longer be needed. There will be perfect peace. There will be no more war. What, what an amazing, glorious, and guaranteed future. And my friends, in, the, in these few verses that we've looked at this morning, we have all of redemptive history, just in a few verses. These words that were written about 700 B.C., they show us God's glorious plan of redemption. We see the radical depravity of, of not only the nation of Judah, but really Judah represents all people, as we heard in, the, uh, in, in our New Testament reading from Romans. Judah represents all the sons and daughters of Adam. Corruption is complete and total. And apart from God, there is no hope. But God has determined to redeem a remnant, a remnant all of grace. And for this remnant, this remnant saved by grace, their sins, although they were like scarlet, they are washed away. Washed by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. They are now white as snow. We are now white as snow, those of us in Christ. And God's grace knows no limits. It goes out. It's not just one, one little people. It goes out to all the nations. It goes out to all the people. People who want to have nothing to do with him. 
And the nations come to the Lord. They learn about the Lord. They love Him. They serve Him. They study His Word. And our Lord will come back. He will set up His eternal kingdom where He will undo all the effects of this fallen world. And we will all love Him. We will all love one another. We will serve Him in perfect joy for all eternity. And my friend, let's let this book of Isaiah, this, this 2700 year old prophecy encourage us. Encourage us as, as we struggle in this fallen world, knowing that God is in control, knowing that his word is true, and taking comfort, taking comfort that we have seen the absolute accuracy. As we as we see the accuracy of this word throughout what we can what we know in history, know that he will complete what he's done. We've seen it at every point in redemptive history. And we are guaranteed, we are guaranteed of a future fulfillment. And friends, this hope sustains us. It sustains us until that day as we faithfully serve him here in this fallen world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you. We thank you, Father, for this answered prophecy that we see in Isaiah. And Lord, I pray for everyone who hears my word, my voice, Lord, that they will be encouraged, that we will be encouraged. Your word is true. Your word is absolutely guaranteed. And if we are in Christ, our sins have been washed away. Though they are scarlet, they have been washed as white as snow. And we are now free. We are now justified. And we are now free from the power of sin. And we can serve you. So, Father, I pray for everyone, again, who hears my word. If there are any who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you will change that now. You will soften their heart. Take out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And those of us who do know you, Father, take away the fear. Help us to realize what we are and whose we are and to live accordingly. We do not have to sin. We are not under the power of sin. We are free from that. We are free to serve you. And it is the most glorious and the most amazing and the most adventurous life there is and a one that that will go on for all eternity. So, Father, I pray that you will be glorified in each one of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.